Welcome back to Crest in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al on this lovely day. We just had Monsignor Charles Pope who came on to talk to us about how Christ does not descend into the waters of baptism alone. He takes us with him. Our next guest is a friend of mine, Luke Lancaster. Luke is the Luke is a cradle Catholic. He hails from Florida, and he started diving into sacred scripture and apologetics in high school. When some Protestant family friends were trying to get his family to convert out of Catholicism using sacred scripture, Luke dove into sacred scripture to understand his faith. In college, Luke took every scripture course available, which is actually where I met him, and led his campus apologetics club. Luke received his Bachelor's of Arts in Theology at Ave Maria University and is presently working on his Master's of Arts in Sacred Scripture at the Augustine Institute. Luke currently serves as the Director of Biblical Apologetics at the St. Peter Institute for Scripture and Evangelization, and he is the host of the Catholic Challenge Apologetics TV show, which airs on Maria Vision USA. Luke, as usual, it's an honor and a joy to have you on the show. How are you doing, brother? I'm doing great, brother. It's great to hear your voice. Likewise, likewise. So, you have a real treat for us today. You're going to be walking us through the reality of uh, archaeology and how it evinces the claims of sacred scripture. Yeah, exactly. So, I just had a course recently from the Augustine Institute going through archaeology in addition to the Bible. And I think it's just such a, a strength. It just it really strengthens people's faith in the Bible and the reliability of it. Uh, nowadays, there's a lot of people that think that the Bible is a lot of mythology. Um, and so being able to find so much of what the Bible talks about set in stone, like it, this is literal history and this is in fact our holy book. Um, so I think it's a, an important topic. I completely agree. In fact, I couldn't agree with you more. One of the biggest injustices that's been done to the field of biblical criticism is that, especially in the 1800s, we had uh, this, this figure, Adolf von Harnack, and, and what he did was he demysticized, if you will, sacred scripture to argue that we can only look at it as a historical book and nothing more. And because of that empirical lens, we can now finally put it in universities and study it. Well, unfortunately, that has engendered this real godlessness towards approaching sacred scripture. But what we're coming to learn now is that the material sciences, such as archaeology, actually prove some of the the historical and even miraculous claims that are made in sacred scripture. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I think probably the most miraculous claim that I would cover today is uh, talking about the powerful seer in the Old Testament known as Balaam. Uh, Balaam, he's the son of Beor, and talked about in Numbers chapters 22 and 23 and 24, mm-hmm. uh, where basically one of Israel's neighbors known as Moab the Moabites, uh, they had wanted to contact this guy, his seer, right, this prophetic man who was known for being able to curse people named Balaam. Um, and so Moab, you know, irritated at Israel, the nation of Israel, hired Balaam to curse Israel uh, in Numbers 22, 23, 24. And we actually found written in the earth a reference to this old seer named Balaam. Um, it's found at uh, in an Aramaic inscription from Tel Der Allah that dates to about the 8th century B.C., uh, and it refers to Balaam receiving messages from various Canaanite deities uh, and his ability to you know, curse. Uh, and that's exactly what's described in the Old Testament uh, mm-hmm. with 
the attempt at Israel. And so, you know, we find that that was not mythological at all. It was totally historical. Right, right. And and something as simple as that uh, evinces a greater reality that God utilized this otherwise pagan and uh, unfaithful. This this was not a man who was within the covenant of Israel, this pagan seer, and he used him to to pronounce blessings upon Israel. So, you know, let's let's dial this back. Uh, there's a stele that uh, evinces some reality to Israel. So walk us through that. Yeah, so there's a a uh, stele known as the Merneptah stele, uh, and this is really ancient. It dates back to probably around 1209 B.C., according to archaeologists, and this uh, stele refers to the nation of Israel in hieroglyphics, the language of Egypt. Uh, it Basically, it describes Pharaoh Merneptah and his victory over Israel. So it describes the nation of Israel, and this is really significant because the Bible talks about the nation of Israel, you know, how we they were, um, first off, you have Abraham in the promised land, and then they went into Egypt, and they were enslaved in Egypt, and then the whole nation of Israel left Egypt and went on, you know, a 40-year wilderness, traveling mm-hmm. all the way into the promised land. Well, Scripture talks about this nation of Israel, and a lot of people, uh, particularly um, atheist scholars or people who are very, very prone to skepticism, they'll think that you know, the nation of Israel, that, that didn't actually exist, you know, it's maybe, uh, you know, maybe they were just like a few people that, no, the, the nation of Israel developed much later. Right. Um, well, no. I mean, the Merneptah daily actually refers to the nation of Israel. And so scholars that want to be more skeptical that they really can't be in the face of evidence like this. And and that's that's really really good to note. One of the greatest uh, injustices that's being done to modern scriptural criticism, as you just mentioned, is that uh, the hermeneutic that's being applied to exegetical work is is that of suspicion. So, for those of you listening, hermeneutics are the principles with which biblical texts are interpreted, and like the, the lens the lens through which we view the sacred scriptures exactly. And unfortunately, you know, you and I have been to different uh, scriptural conferences, and for for those that that contain people who are not just within the Catholic, the faithful Catholic sphere. I mean, I've met people who self-identify as uh, agnostic New Testament scholars. These are people who've devoted their lives to studying the scriptures. They don't believe that God exists, or maybe they do, but they've got no faith in Jesus Christ whatsoever. So it's completely a lens of skepticism and suspicion, and they're looking through the scriptures to constantly find errors and publish these errors in, in the effort of debunking scriptural claims. And yet here we have archaeology, a truth that scripture has claimed for thousands of years. So uh, mm-hmm. t- tell us about Joshua and the altar, the altar that he built on Mount Ebal. Yeah, so in the book of Joshua, this is right after the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You're going to get into Joshua. Joshua's right after that. And the book of Joshua is basically describing Moses' successor. Now, Moses was a very strong early leader of Israel that led the people out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea into the wilderness for 40 years. Um, This is described in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus as well. Um, And his successor was Joshua, and Joshua was somebody that was being trained by Moses for a good portion of his life since Joshua was a little kid. Um, And so Joshua becomes Moses' successor, and it says in the book of Joshua, chapter 8, verses 30 through 55, that Joshua built an altar on Mount Ebal and that he offered sacrifices 
to God. Well, in fact, in 1985, there was a paper published in the Biblical Archaeology Review, and it describes how there was basically what looks like what Joshua's altar was. It basically is a large rectangular figure, uh, 23 by 30 feet and about 10 feet tall. It resembles a cultic center. Um, so an early place that was utilized for worship. Right? And within this thing, it dates back to the 12th century B.C., and it's filled with thousands of animal bones, which you would think would be the case because Joshua built an altar and offered numerous and animals animal sacrifices. to God. Right. Yeah, and so numerous animals like young male bulls, sheep, goats, and fallow deer, mm-hmm. right, they were burnt uh, in an open flame fire between 200 to 600 degrees Celsius, according to this paper that was published in Biblical Archaeology Review. And so it seems that this is literally the altar built by Joshua. Right. And 200 to 600 degrees Celsius is no joke, which, you know, uh, correctly corresponds with the Levitical and Deuteronomic laws of how the altar is supposed to be constructed from uh, unhewn stones and how the fire is supposed to be built and the kinds of sacrifices and the nature of the sacrifices and the, the, way, the way the fire is supposed to be stoked and so on and so forth. So it's, ama- it's amazing that archaeology is coming to shed more light on what the scriptural authors took for granted because everyone saw this happening. Now, you also, uh, you also wanted to share with us something pertaining to King David because one of the greatest fallacies of modern scholarship is the pretense that David was as mythical as King Arthur, and yet that's not the case, is it? No, it's not. And you know, King David, the most famous of Israel's king, constantly referenced throughout the Old Testament. He's referenced in the Psalms. We attribute you know, the Psalms to King David. Mm-hmm. He was a, a man after God's own heart. He was just a little shepherd boy that was chosen by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And he, he loved the Lord with all of his heart. And this David figure and all of the, the successors to King David, they're referenced in various archaeological finds. For example, a very big one uh, was the Tel Dan inscription. This dates to about the late 800s B.C. and refers to the House of David. It refers to an Aramean king, which Aramean king would be somewhere uh, like one of Israel's neighbors, and it refers to this Aramean king killing various people, one of which was somebody from the House of David, a king of the House of David. So that indicates that the, the Davidic dynasty described in sacred scripture was known throughout the ancient Near East. Right? The only way that other people would know about this is if they knew the house of David. Right? They would understand what the Aramean king is referring to because they knew about this kingdom, and it was the Davidic kingdom. So you've got that. Um, you've got numerous other kings like King Yehu uh, or King Omri or King Hezekiah. All these guys are in the lineage of King David, and they're referenced. Uh, for example, King Yehu or King Jehu. Mm-hmm. Um, it's mentioned... Uh, in basically a chunk of limestone that the Assyrian king had written into. It's called the Black Obelisk mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. Shalmaneser III. Yep, right? And yep. this obelisk represents King Jehu giving tribute to the Assyrian king, Shalmaneser III. Right? So Assyria, another one of the neighbors of Israel, Assyria rose to prominence, and they actually decimated the northern kingdom of Israel at about right. 722 right. B.C. Uh, but this thing, this Black Obelisk dates to eight. 58 B.C. to 824 B.C., right? And it refers exactly to Jehu, 
son of Omri. So that's a, a real historical person, and, and not to be brushed aside as just a myth. I mean, King Jehoram was also not one of those kings that was passed up in the annals of archaeology. Now, was he? Oh, we're, uh, mm. we're coming up on the end of this segment, Luke. We want to thank you for talking to us about archaeology and scripture. Stay tuned as Luke Lancaster continues to talk to us about the archaeological evidence for the book of Exodus. For those of you listening, we want to encourage you to listen to the, uh, the uploaded recording of the first hour of the show. I'm Marcus Peter feel, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the Afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. On the show with me right now is Luke Lancaster, and we're talking to him about how archaeology evinces the claims in sacred scripture. Luke, it's as usual, it's an honor to be with you on this show. So let's continue talking about the archaeological evidence for things that are claimed in sacred scripture. Would you like to focus on the Exodus event? Um, I, I don't actually know too, too much about the Exodus events. I do have uh, more stuff to say about um, the Judean kings, right? So uh, the different uh, kings after King David. Um, so one big one would be, for example, King Omri. Mm-hmm. Omri is mentioned in Second Kings chapter three, uh, and the Bible describes King Omri of Israel fighting a war against Israel's neighbor Moab. Um, so a skeptic might think, "Oh, is this legitimate? Is this an actual historical battle? Is this made up?" Well, looks no further than the recent archaeological find known as the Moabite stone or the Mesha inscription, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. where it's written in Moabite. Um, and this stone was commissioned under King Mesha of Moab, looking back on the war that happened between Moab and Israel. Uh, and this you know, stone actually dates to about 850 BC. So this is a very ancient stone, and it describes how King Omri of Israel was humbled my Moab. And so it's describing from the Moabite perspective what happened in a war between the two parties. So obviously Israel was an you know, established nation back then and I can't be ruled out by my scholars. Absolutely. In fact, this Moabite stone that you just mentioned or the Mesha inscription, what's also crucial about it is that the nation that that created this stone, the Moabite nation, they had no other reason to write it other than to document what is historical fact, because the claim that's made on the stone pertaining to Israel is simply that King Omri of Israel humbled Moab first, and then King Mesha of Moab had a victory over him after, which, again, corresponds to the biblical narrative. So, yeah, you're completely right about about, about just how significant these archaeological findings are. Now, where do we move on from here? Yeah, yeah. well, we've got... <laughs> Many other things that we can cover, for example, different wars, um, or for example, King Hezekiah. He was a very famous king. Um, he uh, basically having a he had a struggle uh, with the Assyrian king Sennacherib, um, and Sennacherib came to fight against Hezekiah. Um, so Hezekiah was concerned about this. So what he does is he builds a, a tunnel so that he can get water that's coming from outside of the city. There's a spring 
right next to Jerusalem called the Spring of Gihon. Um, and so basically Hezekiah had a tunnel built from inside Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam, mm-hmm. and channeled that through the earth over to the Spring of Gihon just in case a siege ever happened against Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, that tunnel has been found with an inscription by a very excited engineer <laughs> who <laughs> describes how the tunnel was built by burrowing through the limestone from both ends, and amazingly, they met it near perfectly. They, they met from both ends all the way into the center, and they met at almost the same exact spot. Um, and that dates to the 8th century B.C., which was you know the time period of King Hezekiah. So clearly, the, the engineering feats were not as primitive as some people make them out to be. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, pretty darn impressive there. Um, another one we got is uh, the existence of the Babylonian attack mm-hmm. on Jerusalem. This is yep. huge in sacred scripture. Oh, constantly. absolutely. Uh, the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple itself, the center of worship for Israel was destroyed yep. by yep. the Babylonians. And this war between the Babylonians and Jerusalem is described throughout scripture, and it, it describes for example, in Second Kings chapter twenty-four mm-hmm. or Second Chronicles thirty-six or Jeremiah thirty-nine, oh yeah, yeah, uh, describes how King Nebuchadnezzar, who was existing around six hundred five BC to about five fifty-two BC, he was the king of Babylon, just east of Israel, mm-hmm. and he came and conquered Israel. And it, this is actually written in the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle. Right? This is something written that chronicles the siege of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. where Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem. So it's not only mentioned in the Bible, it's mentioned in ancient Near Eastern sources, such as Nebuchadnezzar himself, the opposing party, the enemy of Israel. Right. This is outstanding. This truly is outstanding. This reminds me of, of the fact that whenever we do any uh, biblical historical criticism, the fact is we have more first-hand sources, so primary sources, primary texts that evince biblical events and extra-biblical texts that evince biblical events that are of infinitely more in number, or not infinitely at the very least, but innumerably more in number than we have of some of the greatest figures in history. You know, people like Charlemagne, Aristotle, Plato, Plotinus, Porphyry, Socrates, uh, Herodotus, all of these people, even if you combine them, they pale in comparison to how many documents there are outside of the scriptures that prove what the scriptures actually say are completely authenticated. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And you know, something else I want to get into is the New Testament, because there's a lot for that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the Pool of Bethesda mm-hmm, is mentioned mm-hmm. in John chapter 5. Some scholars thought that didn't exist. Same thing with the Pool of Siloam. Some scholars thought that didn't exist, just made up. Because uh, the Bible is just all myths, right? Well, mm-hmm. no, those things have been found. The Pool of Bethesda was found in the 19th century, and then the Pool of Siloam was found very recently. Yep. Um, so you got the pools there that Jesus himself walked to, or is described in the Gospels. There's even a reference uh, to Pontius Pilate. This was found, you know, probably about 50 years ago in 1961 AD in Caesarea. There's a reference to Pontius Pilate existing in ancient reference. Pontius Pilate was, of course, the Roman procurator over uh, the area that Jesus lived in Judea and Jerusalem. Um, we've also got things like ancient coins that refer to King Herod. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, killed John the Baptist. Uh, Herod Agrippa I, who killed St. James, one of the Twelve Apostles in Acts chapter 12. We've got also ancient coins that refer to King 
Herod Agrippa II, which is who St. Paul testified before again in Acts chapter 22 or so, somewhere mm. there. Um, you also got a reference to, high, to the high priest Caiaphas. Remember, he was the yep, high yep. priest at the time that Jesus died in 30 AD. So that was just found in 1990 in an ossuary containing his bones. It's just a box that says the high priest Caiaphas, ancient bones referring to, None other than the person that the Gospels refer to. So the Gospels are historical sentences, the yep. Old Testament. They're historical events. You can put your faith in them and you can put your trust in them, yep. knowing that they're not just myths. Yep. You know, Pope Benedict, Pope Benedict XVI in his work, uh, the uh, Jesus of Nazareth, he he says very clearly that what we need to understand is that the 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 incarnation, the passion, the life, passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is uh, are not events that are set sometime in the past and are mystical. They are they are fixed points in history. Human history was altered by the presence of this real person named Jesus Christ. And the thing is, what you're telling us right now is that we have archaeological and textual evidence that very simply and concretely proves that. Contrary to some of the claims of modern scripture scholarship, Jesus Christ was not an imaginary figure. He was a real person who walked this earth, and he had true influence on the nation of Israel at that time. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, not only archaeology, but you can find that in non-Christian historians. Like, for example, Cornelius Tacitus. He was a a Roman historian dating Mm -hmm. about 117 A.D. He refers to the existence of Jesus Christ. Um, or, honestly, my favorite would have to be St. Justin Martyr, uh, who, at about 150 A.D., wrote to the Roman Emperor, and he told the Roman Emperor, you know, if you want to know about Jesus, go look up the records. We've got <laughs> records of different people. You can go look up the records of Pontius Pilate in Judea, about 30 A.D., look them up, and you will find in the deaths that happened that year, Jesus was called the Christ, the Messiah of Israel. So mm-hmm. I think that so much of history is confirming the Christian faith, and we should know about these things to refute these skeptics. Yep, absolutely, absolutely. One of the saddest things that is also happening in in modern biblical criticism is that in order to, they validate the fact that Jesus was a real person, but in order to invalidate his ministry in order in order to invalid invalidate all the things that he said and what he did within the scriptures what they seek to evince is that number 1 the scriptures are completely unreliable and now you're proving to us that uh, based on the findings in archaeology and historical texts that the scriptures are not only historically valid but just factually so uh, but over and above that, one of the claims they make is that Jesus was just a rabbi, you know, a moral rabbi. He was just a moral teacher. And uh, Paul, Paul was uh, an, a mentally unstable individual. He was bipolar and whatnot. And he was the, the inventor of this new movement that eventually became Christ, uh, Christianity. So, uh, you know, it's in the face of all this that we need to arm ourselves with these tools of natural reason, these sciences that are natural because science is on our side. Scripture does not make any claim that cannot be evinced in a properly speaking manner by the handmaiden that uh, by its handmaiden that is philosophy and the natural sciences corroborate all these things within the realm of natural reason what is what is demonstrated historically so uh, take us deeper into this Luke what other findings yeah. in archaeology can we uh, can we see pertaining to the scriptures absolutely yeah so we've given a bunch about um, 
King, King David and the, the people after him. Uh, we referenced somebody who was before King David. That was um, Joshua, who was basically Moses' successor, and he was leading the people of Israel. Um, to give a, a broader sketch, um, whenever we described Babylon, and mm-hmm. how Babylon had, dis- had destroyed Jerusalem, and we read about uh, King Nebuchadnezzar and uh, the Nebuchadnezzar Chronicle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that describes Jerusalem being destroyed. Well, what about when Jerusalem was restored, when Jerusalem was rebuilt? Right, right. That's, that's described in two books in the Old Testament known as Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's described in these books how Nebuchadnezzar died, and then a king sometime afterward in Persia arose, knowing King Cyrus. Mm-hmm. And King Cyrus arose, and he destroyed Babylon. He took over Babylon. And so if Babylon was the one who would destroy Jerusalem, King Cyrus was like, you know what? I want to rebuild Jerusalem. Like, I'm going to send all you Jews back to Jerusalem because some of the Jews have been taken captive into Babylon. Mm-hmm. So Cyrus sends the people. Uh, he sends Israel back to its sacred city, back to its sacred temple. It was destroyed. And he gives them supplies and money to rebuild their temple. And this is actually described in the Cyrus Cylinder. The mm-hmm. Cyrus Cylinder uh, is you know, a cylinder, um, and it's basically a cuneiform document that describes King Cyrus of Persia's religious toleration policies toward various nations. Right? So the Cyrus Cylinder describes King Cyrus of Persia and doing exactly what he did, which was he was very religiously tolerant towards Israel and allowed them to go back mm-hmm. to their sacred city and rebuild Jerusalem. So yet again, we've got another piece of evidence suggesting that the Bible is describing fact. It's describing the history of the chosen people of Israel, the Jewish nation. Yep, absolutely. And one of the other key historical evidences of a lot of the claims of sacred scripture pertain to the location of the temple and to this day that one of the walls of the temple it's the only wall that's standing but it still stands in the holy land so not only do we have archaeological evidence we have in this case this construction evidence so i want to thank you luke for coming on our show do you have last words to say just very briefly we've got less than 10 seconds yeah check out the saint peter institute stpeterinstitute.com to learn more about archaeology in the Bible. You can also check out the article I wrote for Catholic Answers. Just type in How Archaeology Dispels Bible Myths by Luke Lancaster. Thank you, Luke. Stay tuned.